For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me and warned me not to walk in the way of this people, saying, Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear, and let him be your dread. And he will become a sanctuary, and a stone of offense, and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall be snared and taken. Bind up the testimony. Seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord, who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts, who dwells on Mount Zion. And when they say to you, Inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. Should not a people inquire of their God? Should they inquire of the dead on behalf of the living? To the teaching and the testimony. If they will not speak according to this word, it is because they have no dawn. They will pass through the land, greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward. And they will look to the earth but behold, distress and darkness, the gloom of anguish, and they will be thrust into thick darkness. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them as light shone. The word of the Lord. Well, again, good morning. Uh, would you please join with me in prayer? Father, again, we um, pause because we don't want to take for granted <clears throat> the reality uh, that we are kind of sitting in the presence of, that you, the God of the universe, are one who speaks to us. And so we ask again uh, for your help. Uh, we want this um, to be what you want it to be for us. We want it to be shaped by your word. We want to hear it. So we ask that you would help us to hear, that you would help me to speak, that in every way you would be honored and we would be strengthened. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So, I want to just own from the outset that there is something that's going to be somewhat awkward about this passage and where it takes us, something that maybe is a little uncomfortable, at least for me. And that is because this passage calls us to recognize and even name the fact that there are churches that are doing things wrong. It's probably good for me to back up for a moment because uh, we're not able to look at every chapter in Isaiah. You might notice we've gone straight from chapter 6 to chapter 8. We just don't have time to look at all 66. And so let me just let you know where we're at now. You might remember that last week we were seeing Isaiah's call to ministry when he probably was in his early 20s. It is now 15 years later. And a couple of things have developed since that moment. One of them is that right now, this small nation of Judah, for which Isaiah is a prophet, is experiencing um, some political unrest, we might say. There are two nations to the north of it, the nation of 
the 10 tribes of Israel and the nation of Syria who have decided that they want to conquer Judah. And that is a terrifying thought. We are people who are blessed with not really worrying about kind of armies invading us. But you can just imagine if you were bordering nations that are threatening to invade you, the fear it might be. Your family is now in danger and could die or could be enslaved. It would be constantly preoccupying you if you were in the nation at that time. And then secondly, not only are they in a time of political unrest, but they have a thoroughly unprincipled king by the name of Ahaz. Ahaz claims to be a follower of God, belonging to the people of God, and yet in reality, whatever keeps him most in power is what he will do. And it doesn't matter what that is. He's told by the prophet Isaiah, yes, there's a danger before you, but trust God. You don't need to go anywhere else. He will take care of you. And Ahaz says, thanks, but no thanks. Instead, he decides that the best idea is to become best friends with the biggest bully in the playground. He finds Assyria, becomes allies with Assyria, the, the, the mighty, terrifying nation of Assyria, and says, hey, could you help us out a little bit? In fact, he is so interested on becoming friends with Assyria that he actually changes the way the temple is, changes the furniture and the look to make it more and more look like the Assyrian way of doing things because he wants to be buds with them. He doesn't care about the implications of it. And, and here's the thing. For a time, at least, his decisions work. Assyria does come and pick on those other two nations and obliterates them and suddenly Judah's like, hey, problem solved. And so you can only imagine how people are thinking about Ahaz, that Ahaz, well, he's not a great king like David, but you know, he is a king who gets things done. He's probably the king that we need right now. So you have this political instability, you have this unprincipled king, and it probably doesn't take too much imagination to think about the effect that it would have on the people. When all that you can be thinking about is the dangers around and the different nations as they're fighting, and when your leader, when the person in some ways who's your example that you actually start thinking a little bit highly of as he seems to succeed, is thoroughly godless, you're going to, even if you are a worshiper of God, which the people of Judah are, going to move God further and further away from the center of your attention, and what's going on with all of this is going to be preoccupying you. And that is the problem that God's people has. You could say, to kind of use old school language, they have God, gone from being God-centered to being man-centered. And that's a problem. Because God only is okay if he is the center, if he is God, because that's what it means to be God. And so he is not going to allow his people to remain in the situation. And so what we have kind of in chapter 7 and 8 is this explanation that God has of what he's going to do to bring about a solution. He still will be the faithful God of his people, but he needs to bring his people back to faithfulness. And there are two things that we see are God's plan for bringing his people back. The first one we've actually been talking about for the last few weeks, and that is his plan is to humble his people. What he has said is going to happen is this nation that they have allied with, Assyria, is not going to just stop at those two nations in the north. They are going to come to Judah, and they are going to destroy much of Judah, and Judah will be humbled, and it will be miserable. That's one thing that he says is going to happen. 
But, but the second part, and here's really where our passage takes us this morning, is that God also, during this time of humbling, is going to preserve for himself a, a people of resistance, a, a pocket within the larger nation, a, a remnant, as the Bible calls it, who will stay faithful who will continue to have God as their center. And as this small subgroup of resistance continues, they will hold fast this witness of an alternative way of responding to God. A witness who will stay fast even as things get bad so that when the day that God's people are humbled and ready to hear, they will be there to declare it. And what we see in our passage is that God is calling Isaiah to be part of this resistance movement. Do you notice how it begins? It says, For the Lord spoke thus to me with his strong hand upon me. Now, I don't even know exactly what that means. Commentators don't, but what it's clear is this is very emphatic. God is weighing Isaiah down, and he wants him really to hear what he has to say. And here's what he says, and he warns me not to walk in the way of this people. Now, we need to be clear about who this people are. Most of the time when you see warnings in the Old Testament, it's do not walk like the other nations. Do not follow the idolatries of the other nations. But here we see something really striking. Do not walk in the way of my people, God is saying. In other words, my people are faithless right now. You need to actually look around and recognize that my people are in the wrong You need to to recognize that wrongness, and you need to resist. You need to live otherwise. And and here is where we get to that part that I want to say is uncomfortable. Because what we have in the rest of the passage is a description of what to notice in terms of faithful, faithlessness in God's people. What's to d- be different from and, and, and how to resist it. There is a call to be critical. Not, not of ourselves, although that's valuable. Not of what's going on in the world, although that is also relevant. But to be actually humbly critical of fellow members of the people of God. And that, for me, is uncomfortable. I don't know if it's uncomfortable for you. I, I know um, sometimes when I'm asked by people, whether it's in this church who are visiting or people who are neighbors, you know, what kind of pastor are you? And they ask about it. And, and then at a certain point, they want to say, what's different? And, and that gets kind of awkward. Because if I'm being really honest, I am, and I, 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 I rarely will actually be this transparent, I'll say, you know, there's some churches that we kind of disagree with, but we feel on the same team, but part of what makes us, you know, this is important to us, is there are some churches that we believe are deeply, deeply wrong. But see, to say that, I know if I were being that transparent, how it would come off. It comes off as divisive, right? It comes off as arrogant, as holier than thou. And if I'm honest, there are times when I'm thinking in those terms where I am being arrogant because I have issues with pride as well, of course. But, but what is, is clear is that what we have here is a call to actually see this. See, every generation has 
the same temptation. Every generation of God's people have the same temptation to move from being centered upon him to being centered on humanity, to be man-centered. And there are examples, and I say this with grief, of churches that have lost the gospel because they have succumbed to this temptation. And so God is saying, even as he says to Isaiah, he is saying to us, do not walk in the way of this people. You need to be alert to when my people are faithless and you need to resist and be faithful. So in our passage, what we have is we have three, I think, I think you could call them signs of an unhealthy church, three ways that we see man-centeredness, we see faithlessness, and with those three ways, we also see three calls to resistance, to faithfulness. And the first one that we see, this sign of unhealthiness in a church, is a move from a fear of God to a fear of man. So you look right after it says, it warned me not to walk in the way of this people. It's saying, do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy. I don't know if you've ever known a conspiracy theorist. I always find it kind of like interesting how some people get so into like all the details of the Kennedy assassination or of how really Google is taking over the world or there's something political going on. It's an interesting thing to wonder what, what drives that. I was looking it up this week in terms of um, like a, a psychology journal was saying that they did studies amongst people who, who kind of put forward conspiracy theories and it seems almost always to be a response to anxiety, to a sense of, of powerlessness. When, when forces are too big and it feels like you can't do anything, at least if you can know what's going on, at least if you can be in the know of what really is happening, it's a way of managing that anxiety. And I think that's actually what's going on amongst God's people. That's what God is addressing here. If you are part of the nation of Judah and nations are coming all around and storming, you can do nothing if you're not the king. So what do you do as you're waiting and wondering? You talk. You talk with your neighbors. You start thinking through what do we think is actually going on. You start kind of planning and figuring out this is probably what's happening. You're getting involved in conspiracy theories. And the problem with that is when that is your preoccupation, then that becomes the center of your focus. Your, your lives rise and fall on what goes on and the political machinations all around you. And so God says, here's the issue. When he says, do not call conspiracy what people call conspiracy, do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. The problem is they are fearing other people. They are they're making what is going on in, in the world around them the very center of their existence, and that is the center of their anxiety and there is something really mistaken about that, he says. So there's this book um, written by a guy by the name of Ed Welch that is entitled, When People Are Big and God is Small. And I think actually that's a pretty good description of what's taking place here. People have become big. The, the, the rising and falling of armies have become big and they've become so big that God has just kind of moved to the periphery. He has been shrunk. They have the fear of man that drives them. You know, I would suggest that actually whenever we see churches moving towards faithlessness, this is where it begins. 
And so God says, do not fear what they fear. What, what would examples be even today of where churches have gotten so preoccupied with what is going on in, in the news and the life around us that we have allowed God to be shrunk? Well, I would suggest to you that one of the greatest dangers for the church right now is politics. I'm not saying that churches should not be involved in politics. If, if we are longing to see justice and mercy in this world, then that will mean we will try to, to vote and try to serve in a way to bring this about. But there are ways that we can start making what is going on in D.C. to be the very center of our focus so that it, it defines us. And my guess is you know what I'm talking about because we've seen it. Churches suddenly become defined by Donald Trump. Whether, whether it's churches where the congregation feels like their, all of their energy needs to be to resist, to figure out how to way to get Trump out, to protest against Trump and all of his, his corruption, or it's the group of people who believe that Trump is someone who's protecting religious freedom and we need to support him. Either way, the problem is that becomes the center, that, that the fate of the church, the fate of the nation rises or falls on whatever happens in Washington, D.C., it's no different from Israel believing that all that mattered to them in that moment is what happened with Assyria. God says, do not fear what they fear. When you make people big, I become small, and that ultimately is insanity. The, the call to faithfulness rather than faithlessness is, is, comes right after but the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Do you understand? He's not saying that we should just not fear anything. He's saying the problem is we're fearing the wrong thing. We need to fear God. Let him be your dread. What does that mean? I mean, that sounds awfully harsh, doesn't it? Whenever we talk about fear of God, we find probably a bit of confusion. Does that mean I should be terrified of God? And the answer is yes and no. Think about um, what we saw last week with Isaiah. Remember how as, as Isaiah meets God face to face, how he is just inwardly obliterated because he realizes his sin and he sees this glorious, terrifying, amazing God. Now we remember what happens after, that, that God in his mercy extends this, this atonement, this forgiveness. His, his mouth is touched, his sins are forgiven, and he's able to stand in the presence of God and know that he is healed. And it is a glorious moment, but we should not misunderstand what happens next. At that point, it's not suddenly like God in Isaiah's vision becomes cute, becomes tame, becomes someone that he can just be buds with. No, he still is in the presence of this terrifyingly awesome God, and, and that sense does not change. You might say this is, that he has moved from a, a fear that's a terror fear to a fear that's a worship fear, where now it's awe, and he knows that he will be spared, but his vision of the greatness of God does not change. And let me just say, can you imagine as... He leaves that vision how he will now feel differently about everything else. I guarantee you that things that once scared him will not scare him to the same degree. Disease, armies, they are nothing 
compared to the holy, terrifying, awesome God that he has come face to face with. God in his vision has become big. And other things have become smaller. And that's what God is saying when he's calling for us to fear him. We, we, if you are in Christ, do not need to have a terror fear of God because like Isaiah, we have been forgiven. We are cleansed. We can stand in the presence of God and be bold, we are told. And yet, if we ever think that that means we can treat God trivially, as just a a dude we hang out with, we are completely misunderstanding what is true. Because our God is a holy, consuming fire. He is beyond our ability to comprehend. And here's the thing, when we see that, when we actually have an appropriate fear of God, when we actually are brought in connection with reality, that allows everything else to take their right place. God says, let me be your fear. Let me be your dread. Do not domesticate me. Allow who I am to be what changes you. This is what it means to be a faithful presence, a resistance to fear God and not man. That's the first contrast that we see in our passage. The second sign of unhealthiness, of man-centeredness, of faithlessness that we see in these verses is a move from the wisdom of God to human wisdom. So when you are in the midst of turmoil, almost always you're wanting some degree of understanding, some kinds of answers, and that was true then as it is now. But do you notice what they do, what God's people, God's people are doing when they're feeling bewildered by what's taking place? Verse 19, and when they say to you, inquire of the mediums and the necromancers who chirp and mutter. So, so recognize what he's saying. He's saying God's people, the people of the covenant, are going to come to Isaiah, the prophet who has met face to face with God, the prophet who is able to speak on behalf of God, and here's what they're going to say. Could you, um, could you go talk to that guy over there? Because I kind of feel embarrassed too. This, the guy who speaks to the dead. Because I, I kind of want to talk to that dead person. They're bypassing holy God's knowledge, the word of God, the prophet of God, because they want to speak to a human being, and not just a human being, a dead human being, because somehow when your heart stops, you suddenly know everything or something. It's absurd. Except it also completely follows from what we've already said. If If people are at the very center of how you see things, if there is nothing more important or more significant or more powerful in the way that you approach life than other people and the decisions they make, then the wisdom you will seek will also be from other people. And and we see that today, don't we? I mean, just imagine from, imagine if Let's put it like in the future, 10 years from now, so we're not thinking about one person in particular, but imagine if the president, a decade from now, says, you know, we have a really difficult thing before us. I'm really feeling like the economic uncertainty and international uncertainty, so I'm going to talk to the, to the church leaders, 
to the theologians who know God's word, we're going to pray together and really seek God's wisdom in figuring out what to do next. Can you imagine how the press would respond? Why don't you talk to people who know what they're talking about? Why don't you talk to economists? Why don't you talk to political leaders? Why would you do this? Because we would never even think to find wisdom from God. But the thing that's more distressing is we see that same tendency in churches. And oftentimes, actually, it's motivated by some really good motivations. So if you are familiar with um, church history, you might know that in the last two centuries or so, the, the mainline Protestant churches, the big churches that have been kind of the primary ones, have in general moved away from some of the Bible's teachings, say, biblical ethics or the biblical teaching of the resurrection of the body of Jesus, or the biblical teaching that salvation comes only through Jesus alone. They've moved from those things to positions that generally are more palatable to the people in our culture. It's, it's a clear example of, of what's being talked about here, of, of choosing human wisdom instead of God's wisdom. But maybe we don't realize it's, it's almost always been motivated by actually a good desire, a desire to, to shape the world around us, a desire to connect to people and reach out to them and draw them into the church, this, this belief that if, we, if we're not saying things well, if we're saying that just cannot be believed in our day and age, then we won't be able to reach people. So let's, let's do this so that we can reach people. It's a good desire. And I think it's important for us to recognize that that's what motivates it because that then helps us to see that it's not just in the liberal churches, but also in the conservative churches that we see the very same tendency. What do you think it communicates when a person, say, at church, opens the Bible, reads a verse, and then for the next 30 minutes says nothing about that passage but says a number of great anecdotes, illustrations from good business and psychology uh, thinkers, and then ends with three practical steps to to move forward. Is it saying, hey, we really revere the wisdom of God and we want to inquire of God? No. We understand why, right? Because that is what's captivating. That's sometimes what's easier for people to hear. And yet, what is it? It is saying that that the wisdom of God is nothing to us. We'd much rather understand the, the wisdom of man. It is unfaithfulness. It is man-centeredness. And to, to the church, God, God raises this question. When, when people say this and say, let's inquire of these, should not a people inquire of their God? It's the most obvious question, isn't it? God is saying, I made all of this. I know all of this. Don't you think you should ask me if you're trying to understand things. The the call to resistance, the call to faithfulness is very clear here. Verse 20, to the teaching and to the testimony. We are in a day that so deeply needs wisdom and yet every every survey I've seen says that that the, the church is becoming increasingly ignorant of the Bible every few years. And that's terrifying to me because we so deeply need to hear God. God says, should you not inquire of me to my teaching, to my testimony, to my word? 
If you wonder sometimes why we have long extended scripture readings, which sometimes can be hard to listen to, or why we spend so much time on Sunday morning looking at God's Word together, or even having it in Sunday school, and then even in discipleship groups, here's the reason, because we need to push directly against this tendency. We need to know God's Word more. We need to understand it more. And we need even more than that. When, when God says, should you not inquire of me, that means not just a knowledge, that's a longing to know and understand and be changed. Let me encourage you, even as I encourage myself, we need to be people who are students of God's word, who are listeners, who are willing to endure the challenges that always exist in studying God's word because we believe that in God we find wisdom. This is the second way of resistance, of faithfulness, of turning to the wisdom of God instead of only the wisdom of man. Finally, the third, the third trait of, or sign of, of a lack of health in church is, is when people lose their hope in God. See, when, um, when you don't see God rightly and when you don't hear God rightly, you will not be able to also understand what God does rightly. So we've already said that Isaiah knows where things are going, that in the near future, his people are going to experience an enormous amount of suffering. And God doesn't just tell them, him this is what's going to happen. He actually says, and this is how my people are going to respond. These are the 21 and 22 in our passage. They will pass through the land greatly distressed and hungry. And when they are hungry, they will be enraged and will speak contemptuously against their king and their God and turn their faces upward and they will then look to the earth but behold the stress and darkness, the gloom of anguish and they will be thrust into thick darkness. See, um, when, when, when God is small and people are big, we lose sight of the character of God, of the faithfulness of God. When, when human wisdom is what dominates our understanding and the wisdom of God recedes to the background, then we forget the promises of God. And what that means is that when we encounter difficulties, all that we have left to understand what's going on are our feelings. And in that moment, what feels to be the case is God has either abandoned us or he has failed, or he is not real at all. And so the only response that we have available to us is hopelessness, anger, and despair. That's what we have here. As, as they encounter these sufferings, they despair and shake their fist at God because all they are able to understand is that God is against them. And let me say, this is the trajectory of man-centeredness. When a church moves away from God in the ways we've been describing, this is where it ends up. Maybe not immediately. Sometimes it takes a second generation to show it. But when you do not see God as the center, when you're not listening to God, then you lose your hope in God. Then you lose the gospel. Then you lose faith itself. But we see there is 
an alternative way of interpreting what is taking place. If you, go, if you look right after when God says that they will be thrust into thick darkness, there's this, this kind of turn. It says, but there will be in the future no gloom for her who was in anguish. There's going to be a time where after darkness there is light. In fact, it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And what, what God is saying to Isaiah is something that is completely unbelievable. He's saying that actually the weakest part of, of the ten tribes who have already been destroyed by Assyria, that, that is going to be a place where suddenly things get bright and glorious. And he says there is going to be a child who will become a king and he will make everything right. And, and that is impossible. If, if you are hearing that, that would be impossible unless, unless God is bigger than everything else. And then suddenly it is possible. And, and if you hear that, it would be unbelievable because it makes no sense unless the wisdom of God is shaping our understanding instead of human wisdom. And so what we see with Isaiah is another possible response to suffering. If we back up to verse 17, what does he say? He says, I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face from the house of Jacob and I will hope in him. Do you notice the realism in this? God is hiding his face. I am going to be encountering suffering. This is going to be difficult. But I have God's promises and I know God, and so I will wait for him. See, the whole point of promises is it can hold us over in those times when promises don't look like they're going to be fulfilled. That's why someone promises something. The whole point of hope is to hold on to a reality that we cannot see in the moment. And what we see here is that the fundamental, the, the central call of resistance is a call to wait. It's a call even when our experience seems counter to hold on to the deeper reality of who God is and of what he has said. This is, this is what the remnant will be doing for, for generation after generation. They will wait and they will hold on to these promises even as everyone else thinks it's ridiculous. They will wait and one day, if you know God's word, you know that their waiting will come to an end because there will be a day when the people walking in darkness will see a great light. And there will be a day when a child is born who will be king, when Jesus will bring redemption to his people. They, as they wait, will one day be vindicated. And our calling as those who, who see the example of this remnant is to follow in this example and also to wait. Now, I should be clear, we are, we are not in the same situation of Isaiah. Isaiah and his group were relatively alone and we are not. We have, there are millions of churches right now throughout the world who are partners in the gospel with us. Millions who proclaim Christ that we are side by side with and we rejoice in what they are doing even as we seek to be faithful. And yet, in every generation, there is always the temptation to move 
from having God at the center to having man at the center. And so God says, do not follow in that. Resist. Remain a sign to the world around you through faithfulness. Make me big and people small. Hold on to my wisdom rather than human wisdom and hold on to my promises and wait. And one day when I return, the waiting will come to an end. I'd like us to, even as we hear God's word, to, we, we want to be faithful. We want to respond to God's word in obedience. So I invite you to spend a, a minute or so in, in silent prayer responding to God, however he has spoken to you through this word, and then I will lead us in silent prayer, I mean, lead us in prayer in just a moment's time. Would you please pray silently with me?